NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. You can crush your fingers and all your toes during a data center migration. You can knock on wood, pluck a dozen four-leaf clovers, or look to your lucky stars for a successful office expansion. You could hold your breath, shut your eyes, and say all the world wishes to help avoid cyber attacks. But none of that truly helps you. Because Next Level Moments need the Next Level Network. With the security, reliability, and expertise to take your business further. AT&T Business, the network you can rely on. Mornings can be slow going. But a $1 fresh ground coffee at Racetrack to get you going all month long with Racetrack Rewards? Yeah, that tracks. $1 small coffee for rewards members valid August 2nd through September 5th. Limited time only. See store for details. Make tracks to Racetrack for whatever gets you going. This week on Red Inca, we talk about the West Indian men who chose to play cricket in South Africa during apartheid. And for that, we have the man who wrote the book on them. Ashley Gray, author, hopeful of a job soon. Ashley's book follows all the tourists. But for this episode, we're focused on the friendship and careers of two of the Jamaicans, Herbert Chang and Richard Austin. These two incredibly talented cricketers were on the fringes of the West Indian side, making them the perfect candidates to be bought by South African cricket. This is the story about how they got to that series and what happened after. Actually, we've got you on to basically talk about your book, uh, which has gone very, very well so far. But everyone's talking about your book. I wanted to sort of hone in on a couple of the characters. And you picked Richard Austin and Herbert Chang. So let's go with Austin to start with. Sure. He was basically good enough to open the batting in first-class cricket and open the bowling in first-class cricket. He yeah. also took a huge bag of wickets bowling off spin once and then wicket kept for Kerry Packer's version of the West Indies. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty all-round. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, he ousted Derek Murray to keep for World Series cricket West Indies. Yeah, he convinced Viv Richards that – because Murray was out injured and uh, he convinced Viv Richards that he could – take the gloves. And then when Murray wanted to come back for the third decider, I think, in the World Series Cricket Finals, Austin had a word in Vivian Richards' ear and said, look, I can do it. We're going to lose a batsman if I go and and if Derek comes back. And so uh, Viv acceded to um, Richard Austin's demands and he kept and they won. So, yeah, nice little story there for uh, Richard. Yeah, he was, a, he was definitely an all-round uh, that Jeffrey Dujon told me that he rated him as the best all-round talent as far as cricket goes that he had ever seen. So he was a guy who could pull off magnificent catches as well. There was one that he took in 1978 that Tony Cozier said was so good that words could not describe it. It was off a Graham Yallop uh, flick through the leg side and uh, Graham Yallop was um, in his helmet, the first time a test player had worn a crash helmet to the crease and he flicked it off his toes and 
Austin just threw himself in the air and plucked it. And uh, it was so good that Clive Lloyd came up to him and said, Richard, please go and chase after the ball. Come on, what are you doing? And uh, Richard just produced the ball from his uh, pocket and said, here, Skip, because Lloyd had thought that uh, had gone to the boundary. It was that great a catch. So, yeah, he could do anything. He was also a great table tennis player. And also a good uh, footballer. He played soccer for Arnott Gardens in the Jamaican First Division, helped them to a title in 1977. There's a story of him playing, you know, uh, Shield Shield at um, Sabina Park during the day and then playing for Arnott Gardens at night and scoring a goal. So, yeah, he just loved sport and he was very good at it. Yeah, so that's pretty much what I think everyone means when they say that uh, Richard Austin was an an all-rounder, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the original form of all-rounder, you know, the W.G. Grace yeah, hurdle footballer uh, all-rounder yeah. and C.B. Fry, those sorts of guys. Mm. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, Chang was different. He was an opener, left-handed opener, very cocky. Yep. One thing I really enjoyed reading in your book was how much he sledged bowlers because I just don't think <laughs> yes. can do that enough. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he would give it to Joel Garner and, um, <laughs> you know, say uh, – you know, I hear that they call you Big Bird. Well, I'm going to clip your wings today, Big Bird. You know, and uh, he, he gave it to Andy Roberts. And, and even when he was in the field, you know, fielding in close when Clive Lloyd was batting, a guy that re- really he should have been out to impress, he'd say, if Clive mistimes something, he'd say, um, what kind of shot was that from the West Indies, Captain? Come on, man, you know, this kind of stuff. So, yeah, he wasn't short of uh, self-esteem, was uh, Herbert Chang when he was out batting or on the cricket field. Lawrence Rowe said that Herbert thought that he was the best batsman there ever was. So uh, between him and Richard, they were, they were two very colourful characters. You know. And did they grow up together? I know they're from slightly different parts of town, but did they grow up together? No, not really. No, they went to different schools and uh, they really met at uh, Kensington Cricket Club, which is in the um, southeast of Kingston. And it's sort of flanked by the Long Range Mountains. It's like a little rural oasis in the middle of sort of this grungy, ghetto-wise sort of part of Kingston, you know, and it's really picturesque and it, it feels feels like you're out in the country. But anyway, that's where they learnt their trade and that's where they sort of came together was uh, with Kensington. Lawrence Rowe was captain. Basil Shotgun Williams, who was mm-hmm. the opening batsman who uh, scored a century against Australia in 78. And Desmond Lewis, who was a keeper for West Indies in, in the early 70s. So, you know, this was a a team that was chocker with internationals and chocker with egos, you know. And for Austin, you talked about in the book that there are obviously parts of Jamaica that are not that friendly to go into, but even, yeah. for, even for the locals, they wouldn't go down his street. He, he kept everyone away. So obviously he was from the roughest of the rough area of Kingston. Yeah, he was from Jonestown and um, Herbert Chang is from um, Greenwich Town, which is uh, pretty close to the sea. But that would only be, you know, maybe a kilometre or so from each other. But, yeah, they grew up in different sort of ghettos, but Kensington was where they ultimately came together and and became good friends. They were described at uh, Richard's funeral as two peas in a pod. They just got along. And and one of the things that they had in common was that they both loved hogging the strike. They used to piss off their um, teammates at Kensington and also in Jamaica, you know, um, like Jeffrey Dujon said, you know, it just got so irritating, you know, you just wanted to run him out, you know, talking about um, Herbert Chang. And, yeah, it was the same with Richard Austin. One of his teammates told me that it was like he had a calculator in his head because he would make sure that he got at least five balls of every over, you know, while he was batting to get his eye in, you know. Interesting guys, but, you know, different characters, but um, ultimately they became 
good friends, and that's extended way beyond their careers as well. And so, as you said, it's a very strong Jamaica team. Yep. Obviously, Lawrence Rowe was there as well. So that's age he would have been one of the more famous West Indian mm. cricketers right then. A bit overshadowed now because of everything that sort of came after him and yeah, around sure, him. Yeah. But right yep. then, he, he was huge. That Jamaica team, I mean, it was really packed with talent, but it was going up against yeah. other teams that were pretty talented as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you also had Michael Holding in there. He was handy. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty good, so they told me. One of the interesting things, I'll just a, a little um, aside here, uh, Jared, was that uh, Holding and Chang made their West Indies debuts around the si- same times in ni- 1973, and they both played against the touring Australians, Ian Chappell's Australians. And Changi got, I think, 64 or something like that. And the guy who was reporting on that game said that Herbert Chang and uh, Michael Holding were the future of Jamaican cricket and potentially West Indian cricket. But, of course, their career paths and life paths went in completely different ways, you know. But, yeah, Barbados was uh, a side that was, you know, just rippling with once-in-a-generation talent. You know, you had Joel Garner, you had um, Sylvester Clark, you had Malcolm Marshall, you had uh, Wayne Daniel. Desmond Haynes, David Murray behind the stumps, uh, Gordon Greenwich, you know, Alvin Greenwich. You know, it was just the whole of the West Indies was just plump with talent, you know, in, in a way that I don't think could ever really be repeated. It was just, just kind of amazing, you know. But the intensity of that, the Shell Shield competition, meant that places in the West Indies official side were scarce and uh, you know, really good players who would have made it, no doubt, in other national sides um, didn't get the same opportunities. And on that, so Chang plays one test in India and hilariously he ends up playing on the fastest pitch. It looks like ever in India. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Murray might have been out hit wicket in the first innings and Chang was out hit wicket in the second innings. So if West Indians are being out hit wicket and it was Carson Garvery, not exactly the world's quickest bowler. Take me through that. How does he end up in that test? He ended up in that test. Well, he he hadn't exactly set the world alight in India. I think he scored a half century or something leading up to that. But um, Malcolm Marshall had played and in, in a previous test, possibly two off the top of my head, and he was expecting to play in, in this uh, test, but he wasn't selected and uh, Chang was selected instead. And, and it, it upset Malcolm Marshall. He writes about that in his autobiography. It really pissed him off at, that Chang got his spot because they thought it was going to be a, a batsman's wicket. But um, as it turned out, as you said, it was one of the slipperiest wickets, in certainly in, in the history of Indian cricket. And, and there was a of all things, a bumper war in Madras, you know, which is now Chennai, you know. That was pretty crazy. Um, And even crazier was the fact that here's a guy who's making his debut, a guy who had been very consistent at at Shield Shield level and and certainly deserved his spot, even though he got it because the World Series cricket guys had sort of depleted the uh, West Indian official side. But to get out hooking edging the ball into your, uh, I think it was his ear. So, some people said there was a bit of his ear on the um, on the pitch. There was definitely blood there. And Alvin Calatoran said to me, it was crazy. And Herbert Chang was fucking scared. That's what he said to me, because it was just a wicket they'd never seen before in India. And they'd never expected. So um, that was pretty much the end of his test career, even though he was only uh, 27. But, you know, the strength of the West Indies official side, when they reintegrated after mm. World Series Creek, was just... They were just so awesome at that point that uh, a guy like Chang, you know, who was averaging close to 40 every season and sometimes more than that, and and smashing in particular Barbados. He had a thing for Barbados and their quicks. Like I said, that's Daniel Garner, Marshall, and... uh, Clark, is it? Yeah, Clark, yeah. (laughs) So they had 713 test wickets between them. 
And he just enjoyed smashing them. And uh, Duzon told me a story of, of Chang scoring a century and at the end of it, taking his cap off, laying it down the wicket, and then just pointing to each of the four pacemen and just telling them that they should bowl better, you know, by name. <laughs> You're just going, and this, this is a guy who's only like five foot five, just absolutely giving it to these um, test guys who ultimately become great legends of the game, you know. He had a special thing for scoring against Barbados. He was a, a great player against pace, but, you know, you, you had guys like Larry Gomes and uh, you still had Lawrence Rowe was still in the side in, in 79. Um, you know, so you still had greats playing the game and uh, he, he couldn't get any action there. So, um, yeah, that's where he was at the time. But he was like Richard, you know, they were both from ghettos and he was um, – Herbert Chang was considered something of a dude because he was a snappy dresser. He was seen at nightclubs and he was uh, a very, I'm told, a, a very uh, sort of smart sort of dancer. Um, and he even recorded a single called uh, The Coming of Jar. sort of a, a reggae track which you can um, find on YouTube which I actually think is a top little piece of uh, music and yeah he was sort of the guy that had kudos because he was in an area as well Greenwich Town which had a sort of roots reggae scene happening and he was the test cricketer he was um, sort of lauded for having made it in a way out of the ghetto and um, shown that he was uh a guy to be to be reckoned with. So so yeah, he was quite the man back then, even though he, he was no longer in the um West Indies setup. And they have a word in, in the sort of Jamaican patois called Bosey, which means that someone is kind of flashy and self-assured. And that's what Herbert Chang was at that time. He was very flashy and very self-assured. Yeah. Richard Austin was probably the better cricketer out of the two of them. As you said, Dujon said he was the best all-round talent that, that he played with. Austin actually was recruited by Kerry Packer and went to World Series cricket. He did play two tests as well, but he didn't really do much other than that incredible catch that you described yeah. earlier, the one that uh, Tony Cozier had no words for. If Tony Cozier has no words for a catch, it must be pretty handy. Exactly. Yeah. But he played a couple of tests, but he almost went straight from playing tests to going to World Series cricket, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, see, the thing that happened was that... Um, he and Desmond Haynes were in that side. They made their test debuts together, which is kind of extraordinary as well. When you think of what happened to Desmond Haynes and his stellar career and what happened to Richard Austin. But um, the West Indies Cricket Board wanted them to sign on for, um, I think it was an Indian tour later that year. And they wanted all the players to um, be available for that. But they were already signed with World Series Cricket. And so they couldn't sign on for that. And uh, Austin and Haynes were dropped. And so was Derek Murray, who was kind of the team's spokesman. And then Clive Lloyd, he said, well, if, if they're being sacked, we're, we're going as well. So it was basically a walkout on all the side. Perhaps there was a bit of political flack that um, Austin copped from that decision because uh, maybe it was thought that uh, as a newcomer, he should have uh, respected the cap or something more. But But generally... He had, and so did Haynes and Lloyd, they had the press on their side who thought that um, the West Indies cricket ball was just being petty and um, getting in the way of the progress of professional cricket. So, yeah, he came out to Australia and uh, in 78, 79, Richard Austin, and uh, 
Greg Chappell told me that he remembered him quite well and said that uh, Richard Austin was always uh, sort of cooler than Joe Cool. It was as if he invented it, you know, just the way he sort of carried himself. But he also said that he was almost too cool and um, that may have been his downfall because certainly at that stage he was a, a heavy marijuana smoker, which wasn't uncommon, but um, some people could already sense that maybe the wheels were coming off. That said, um, in one test, uh, I think he took like four for 80-odd and almost scored a century and pretty much won the game for, for the West Indies. And, uh, and he also took the gloves in the World Series Cricket one-day finals and uh, participated in that victory. But, uh, yeah, he didn't make it to the 79 World Cup. And I think it was sort of a compromise thing where they wanted to pick some establishment guys and, and he was the guy who kind of missed out. And from that moment on, he, his career didn't really go anywhere uh, he played some um, Lancashire League uh, cricket and also Shield Shield for um, Jamaica. But, yeah, there was no real chance that he was ever going to represent the West Indies first side again. As good as he was, there's not an obvious spot for him in that side either. Like As they're moving towards the four placemen, unless you use him as an off-spinner, which he was occasionally and obviously was yeah. quite a good one, he certainly wasn't <laughs> yeah. a full-time off-spinner. And so it would have been interesting to see had he been able to develop where they would have fitted him in. I almost feel like he would have been a squad member quite a lot and maybe he wouldn't have played a lot. Yeah, yeah. Probably someone like Collis King, you know, who had mm. similar kind of talents. But uh, Collis was also a, a guy who liked to have a good time off the pitch in the same way that Richard Austin did. But in a way, he could control himself a bit better and, and he knew when to produce, whereas I'm not sure that Richard could. And also Richard... When he got the money from World Series Cricket, he most of the guys put it into a, a special um, sort of sportsman's uh, account that they had back then. And, you know, it was managed so that they would get maximum interest and all that. But he just wanted the money straight away and he blew it on BMWs and, uh, and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, and drugs. And, and that's when he started taking cocaine. But the thing that everyone said to me, Collis King, Jeffrey Dujon, Ray Winter, his um, Jamaican teammate, was that you would go to a nightclub with Richard and because he was such a happy, outgoing, trusting sort of guy who just liked to have a good time with whoever he was with, he would shout the whole bar. He'd see you and he'd buy you a case of beer. You know, he was just, uh, he just wanted to live for the moment and, and enjoy it and um, and sort of love life. So he was kind of naive in, in, in financial matters. And that was one of his uh, ultimate downfalls. He just could not um, work out what to do with money and, and how to make it work for him, even though he would end up earning a lot of it. You know. Well, I mean, that's the thing. So you talk about, I can't remember if it was a one day he played or a test match where he was paid 74 US dollars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he goes from that to being offered $20,000 with Kerry Packer. This is all US money, not Jamaican or Australian either. Yeah, exactly. And then he's offered $100,000 to go and play in South Africa. Now, I looked this up. That would have had him just under an average NBA salary at the time. Like We're talking about money that cricketers just did not make. He was suddenly offered in a short period of time going from basically pocket money through to you know the sort of money that you could own whatever you wanted in Jamaica. You could see how easy those guys were as targets. $100,000 was almost 80 times what a Jamaican could expect to earn in a year. It was um, amazing amounts of money. And uh, Austin was quoted on the plane flight to um, Johannesburg saying that, um, I think it was an interview with the Daily, with the, with the Mirror, and he said, I can't feed my family on principles. I mean, he had a wife back in Kingston and also a, a young son, Ricardo. 
and this is what he said because there just wasn't much happening other than a little bit of league cricket in in Lancashire and also um, the five first-class games in the Caribbean. So that doesn't add up to a lot of cricket in a year and a lot of money. And he had he had a coaching job, but he was just keeping his head above water, really. And then you're offered enough money to um, pretty much set yourself up for life. You know, it, it would have been hard to say no. And, and obviously... Guys like Michael Holding and Clive Lloyd, they justifiably said no because they felt that by going, you were legitimising the um, apartheid regime as such. But as Roland Butcher pointed out to me, the first black man to represent England, would they have said the same thing if they were in the same position as these guys? You know, who, mm. a lot of them who were past the best, you know, weren't set up for careers after cricket like Holding and, and Lloyd ultimately were. Those guys were legends of the game. Yeah, would they have said the same things if they're in the same position? Who knows? But um, it would have been very tempting. And I think that's one of the things that the book does, uh, Jared, is it puts you in that position, you know, ask whether you would have taken the money or you would have stuck by your principles, you know. And I think that would have been a very hard decision to make. And even on that aeroplane flight to Jan Smuts Airport in, in Johannesburg, as it was then known, five minutes before they landed, you know, there were a lot of guys on that plane who were going, uh, what have we done? You know, what have I done? And one of them even mm. threatened to go and get the pilot to turn the plane around. You know? you know, they were torn as well. You know, they were torn, but ultimately you know, money. In a region where, relatively impoverished region, where most cricketers after their career could not be guaranteed a job in the um, commentary box or a, a job on a board or whatever you might get, in Australia or England, yeah, there was none of that money sort of swishing around the Caribbean. So these guys uh, sort of jumped at the chance. And that's what Richard and, and ultimately Herbert did as well. Yeah. Well, I just want to talk about Herbert because he's quite interesting because a bit like Alice Chong, he was ethnically Chinese, so Chinese, West Indian. So, you know, they're not as well known. But we kind of think of West Indian cricket as a black cricket culture, but it is not a black cricket culture. There's an Asian cricket culture there. There's obviously a white cricket culture there for a long time. And we've got a Portuguese ethnic cricketer coming through for them at the moment in Young de Silva. So it's actually quite a melting pot of a lot of different things. Plus, you've got all the islands, which make it even more fun. Yeah. It sounds like these two particular guys were not politically motivated, though. They didn't really think about the politics of it as much. Not really. I mean, they were um, nominally against apartheid, as as all the guys were. You know, I mean... As the MCC were when Basil de Oliveira, but still didn't pick him. <laughs> we're against it, but at the same time, yeah. we'd like cricket to go ahead and we'd like to be paid. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'd like to be paid a shitload of money. Yeah, so in Herbert's case, um, yeah, he didn't like apartheid, but he he liked the challenge of playing in South Africa because uh, he'd heard so much about their team from the 60s and, and early 70s and, and how good they were. But yeah, yeah, he wanted the money big time. And uh, Richard said to me that he went because of his childhood. You know, growing up, his uh, father worked in the, I think it's called the Coronation Markets in, in Kingston, you know, just selling anything and, and whatever. 
So these guys came from poor backgrounds. I mean, Herbert Chang's father was actually, um, he ran a few ice cream parlors and a few um, shops like that, I think. And he was ethnically Chinese. Um, that's where uh, Herbert gets that side from. But yeah, Herbert, he's a very, like his family said to me that um, they didn't even know that he'd gone to South Africa. He's a very private kind of guy, you know. I mean, he never really used to talk about the cricket much at all. His half-brother Patrick would go and see him at games and stuff. But, um, yeah, he just sort of lived in his own little world and kept everything in, in his head. And that may have been ultimately one of the reasons for um, his, his kind of breakdown because he, he never really shared any of the, the troubles that he was facing with anyone. But, yeah, so he, he just went... Patrick, his brother, his half-brother, said to me that um, one evening he was there and then the next we read about in the paper that he was on a plane to South Africa and, and that was it. So, um, But as far as apartheid goes, yeah, I don't think they really understood what it was about. But that what they did understand, I think, was that, um, especially in Jamaica, that, that there was going to be a backlash, that it wasn't going to be like in England where it was three years and a tap on the wrist at worst. And ultimately didn't mean a thing because most of those guys ended up playing again and becoming legends of the game and getting knighthoods and mm. blah, blah, blah. But in Jamaica, um, yeah, Michael Manley was you know, the ex-Prime Minister and he was the leader of the opposition at the time. And he got up in the UN in the, in the 70s and he'd spoken eloquently against apartheid and he'd, he'd actually advocated a land, sea and air boycott of uh, South Africa. So he wanted South Africa completely and utterly isolated and he wrote that apartheid was like a dagger at the throat of, of black people throughout the world. And so when the tours kicked off, the Jamaican Cricket Association president at the time said uh, the guys who, who went there, it was pretty much akin to murdering a brother. It was like putting a knife in the back of um, the South African people. And Errol Anderson, who was the uh, youth and community services minister at the time, he said that he would make sure that they would never be allowed to enjoy their blood money in Jamaica. And those were um, words that became very apposite as, as time moved on. And, uh, yeah, so you, you can see that there was a, a lot of, from the political class at least, a lot of hostility to these tours and, uh, and justifiably so because uh, there was a sense that um, by going there, the rebels were not only having to take on a, a form of honorary white status, because being black wasn't good enough, apparently. But they were also um, they were going to a place that discriminated against people of their own colour. So it, it didn't make sense in terms of the Caribbean being a place where peoples of African descent had been deposited because of slavery. And, and here were these cricketers who were going to South Africa to a country that practised a modern form of slavery. So, um, yeah, there, there, was, there was a lot of angst about that, although there was a pop poll taken, um, Jared, in the Jamaica Gleaner newspaper at the time, a Carl Stone poll, found that 68% of people were actually for the tourists, for the rebels. They thought that they would have done the same thing if, if put in the same situation. But at the same time, half of those people that were interviewed didn't actually know what apartheid was. So um, very uh, fiery, intense times, and yeah, the guys knew that um, what they were getting into was going to have a substantial impact on their lives. They were hoping it was just going to be financial, but as they found out, it was more than that. And both the players actually didn't do particularly well in South Africa, did they, considering their talent? Yeah. Um, Austin got a 93 in the um, first so-called test. A lot of the other guys in the other islands said that 
the good thing about Richard was that, uh, or Danny Germs, as as his nickname <laughs> was, that he got from uh, when he was a kid. I said that Danny was a guy that could always be relied on for a laugh. You know, he had a, a fantastic cricket brain, and, and everyone recognised that. But he was always the guy that would be cracking jokes and sort of smoothing out any uh, bumps in the relationships between players. You know, he was good to have around in that way. But but apparently, he also got into a fight while he was there and got beaten up. This is what um, Derek Parry, the off spinner from Nevis told me. He was also, at one point, some uh, border officials found some marijuana in his uh, batting, in his coffin as such. <laughs> and uh, so there were a few incidents there that said to Ali Bakker that maybe Richard Austin wasn't the kind of guy that they wanted to come back for the second tour. So he was paid out, but he wasn't um, asked to come back and he was replaced by uh, Phil Bacchus. And, and Herbert Shank, who was a late inclusion, when they realised that uh, they didn't really have enough batting steel in their order at that point in time. So Rowe knew Changi quite well because they'd played together at Kensington as well as in Jamaica. So he contacted uh, Herbert, as far as I know. And uh, yeah, so he, he came out. But, but Herbert, I think he got a 33, which was um, apparently quite a good knock and was uh, applauded by a few commentators that I've, uh, that I've heard and uh, read their stories of the game. But um, yeah, essentially he he didn't do that well, and he wasn't asked back either. So um, that was pretty much the end of their careers. You've got uh, Richard Austin, who was 28, and Changi, who would have been 29, almost 30. So, um, And here they are, their cricket careers completely finished and banned for life in uh, even club cricket in Jamaica and also test cricket, obviously. Yep. So Richard Austin came back and played a little bit of club cricket when he was about 37, didn't he? And that's the only cricket he played again? Yeah, he played when he was 37 because the test ban was overturned in 89. And then um, a couple of years later, this shows you um, how extreme the feelings were in Jamaica. Even though the test ban was overturned, the club cricket ban wasn't. It was two years later that the club cricket ban was uh, overturned in 91. And Richard was back playing for Kensington. He had a fantastic return. He took five for 78. I think it was against Melbourne. And, And then he scored 52 not out. So for a time in 1991, I think it was in May, May 11 or something like that, on that afternoon, he probably would have been the happiest man alive, I think, to have come back, a guy who lived for cricket. See, this is what his wife told me, that the reason why he got into cocaine after the Rebel Tours was because the pain of not being able to express himself on the cricket field and the ostracism that he felt because he wasn't allowed to play and because guys who used to know him were now shunning him turned him to drugs. So in spite of all that, here he is. He comes back. He has this fantastic return. I've often imagined what happened in the dressing room after that because Morris Foster was a guy who played for around the West Indies in the 70s and, and was Jamaica captain in the mid-70s as well. And he said that the thing about Richard was that if he took a wicket or got some runs, when he got back in the dressing room, he would tell you everything about it from every angle and, and, you know, replay it. So I can just imagine the dressing room after that five for in the 52, not out. Yeah, that he just would have been going off, you know, and just having the time of his life. So I like to think that that was a a moment of um, pure happiness for him and that um, uh, even though... By that stage, his life was kind of in a downward spiral, you know, that he was able to enjoy himself at times, you know, and I think that was one of them, yeah. And so the spiral, it's interesting when you look at both men, it seems like 
they did have money. They did have security in a way that most Jamaicans didn't have. Yep. But they lost things like day jobs because people didn't want to hire people who'd gone to, to apartheid South Africa. They obviously couldn't work as cricketers or cricket coaches or anything like that. And it feels like there's really this incredible loneliness that kind of envelops both of them, that they don't know how to fill their days. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's certainly true of Richard. And uh, his wife at the time, Molly, she told me that um, he would just go to clubs and just blow his money. And uh, he was just completely directionless, off and off his brain on on coke. And then he would get violent when he came home. So, you know, sort of domestic violence issues and all these things that cropped up in Richard's personality that hadn't really been there before. And that's what Molly said. She said that, you know, it wasn't him because it, it was the alienation he felt and it was the cocaine that sort of turned him into a little bit of a monster. And uh, that was a sort of sad side of that. But with um, Herbert, uh, what happened with him was that he was probably a bit more ready to let go of cricket in a way. Um and he had a little bit of a business brain. He'd set up a sort of a betting business. So his, his sister told me he had uh, business associates in Miami and also in California. But um, what happened with him was that, that there was a story going around that the, the money from South Africa was sort of stolen by his girlfriend at the time who sort of absconded to Canada. And um, Herbert was a guy, this is what Jeffrey Dujon told me, he said, a guy who was really uh, very frugal and, and very tight with his money. He'd actually bat with his wallet in his back pocket. The idea that his money, this money he'd earned going to South Africa, was taken or, or somehow disappeared really did sort of screw him up because money was important to him and uh, managing money. He'd been a good manager of money up until that point. Talking to him in, when I saw him 18 months ago, Herbert, he said that it's still in Barclays Bank somewhere, but he doesn't know where, you know. And his brother said that, you know, he thought that he actually hadn't got paid at all. So there are all these stories about what happened to Herbert's money. But the thing with him was that um, ultimately he didn't get it as far as I can ascertain. And that's what really sort of messed with his brain. And that's what ignited these schizophrenic episodes. And so at one point there, uh, Jared, like I said before, he had business associates in Miami, but he was taking like four or five trips to Miami in less than a month kind of thing and not doing anything and then coming back and doing it again and again. And it just seemed like he was just taking these endless trips to Miami. And when he'd get there, he wasn't sleeping and he was just sort of meandering around the place. And obviously there was a problem. And then when his sister came back to um, Kingston and saw him, because she was living in, in uh, New York, and this is just after the Rebel Tours, she found that he was so walking up and down the street in, in Greenwich Town and he was uh, just talking to himself and just in a completely different world. Yeah, that was uh, the sad fall from grace for Herbert. So his was kind of different to um, Richard. Just on the schizophrenia, he was five foot five. He lived in the first real extra pace era, talking about him going up against the Barbados attack. In your book, you talk about him going up against Lily. Garvery gets him in the ear. Kapildev scones him, I think, a couple of times as well. There's a very big chance that he has CTE and it's not schizophrenia and that he's just been hit in the head too many times by a cricket ball, isn't there? There is certainly a chance that is true. And that's what Patrick Gibson, his half-brother, has uh, said to me. But the thing is... Um in Jamaica, there aren't really the facilities 
to measure that kind of thing, you know, but, but I think that there's a definite possibility that could be the case, Jared, and uh, it would be fantastic if Herbert could be tested in that way just to find out whether that was the case and also to find out then whether he would be owed some kind of uh, pension, I think, from the West Indies Cricket Board because um, and also the Jamaica Cricket Association because uh, obviously he's incurred these knocks while he was representing those uh, organisations. So, um, yeah, you, you could be onto something there, Jared. Yeah, it was a helmetless era, and he was uh, as gutsy and as fearless as they come, you know, in the same way that uh, Rick Darling, you know, the, the Aussie blonde bomber from South Australia was, and who now suffers badly because of the, uh, the amount of blows he took hooking, you know. So um, maybe there's something to that, yeah. And so he does actually end up in mental health facilities. Eventually, his family sort of push him into there. But this stage, he's so outside of cricket that the only person who's going to visit him is Richard Austin. Yeah, exactly. And I think that sort of touches my heart in a way because you think there were so many good players who went on to better things after cricket in Jamaica who could have done something for uh, Herbert and who could have helped with the pastoral care of Herbert, but but none of them really did. And and yet here you've got Richard, who's on the downward spiral himself, experiences his own mental problems caused through drug abuse. But here he is turning up at 4th Street in uh, Greenwich Town and um, coming to see his old mate um, Herbert, who he, he used to call knickers, apparently, because he used to think that Herbert liked to nick the ball around the place, you know, and that was kind of the, his way of playing. You know? So it was a sort of funny, playful name that he had for him. But... Um, and Richard would bring like a $300 Jamaica note with him and they go down the shop and maybe buy something to eat or drink. Apparently Jamaican dollars is not worth much. You know, it's maybe just a couple of bucks or you know, a pound or something. You know? So, yeah, I was really touched to learn that um, Richard was pretty much the only guy that kept on seeing him through the whole period. The good thing is that since the book, the guys like Ray Winter have um, started calling on um, Herbert Chang and Ray's a, a lovely guy. He was another one of the Jamaican contingent who went to uh, South Africa, sort of fast slingshot bowler who never played for the West Indies, but who certainly hit a lot of guys. Um, He's been um, visiting Herbert. And also, um, in fact, I spoke to Herbert's brother today and uh, Herbert's brother said that um, there was a guy he used to play with in Jamaica who's now a lawyer. And he came around to visit Herbert uh, recently as well, a lawyer who's connected to the JCA. So hopefully there'll be something maybe done Herbert, even just bringing him back into the fold at some level, you know, maybe inviting him to the, a Savannah Park test or, um, but I, I don't think he could handle, you know, having a, a dinner hosted in his honour. He's just not that kind of guy and just wouldn't do anything for him, but just to maybe at least make the effort to do something for him. Richard was quite interesting because obviously Colin Croft and Franklin Stevenson, there's a few guys that are maybe more famous than him, but Richard almost became the public face of what went wrong. I know that there was that story about Herbert, which I never understood when he was saying, which end am I opening up from? Because he was a batsman. But it sounded like me, he was just making a joke and, and, yeah. and it went poorly. <laughs> but, but, but Richard became the one because he would keep talking to cricketers. Like he was still involved. He would turn up outside the hotel. All those stories I've heard from people in cricket. 
Yep. It seems that his life went so poorly that he kind of turned the tide a little bit and people started to feel sorry for these guys in a way that hadn't happened before. Yeah, there was uh, a sense that maybe the reaction was over the top and that these guys were punished by the fact that they could no longer play cricket and uh, pursue the profession that they'd chosen. Yeah, there was a sense that, uh, especially with Richard, because he was just so visible because he was living on the street in uh, Crossroads, which is in sort of middle Kingston. He had his own home with his brothers and his family, which he'd pretty much financed, but he preferred to slum it in the gutter because uh, he liked to run with this sort of gang of drifters that he'd sort of fallen in with. And uh, I think as I, as I write in the book, it was as, as if in the gutter where no man dared judge another was the only place he really felt at home. So he was by that stage um, living rough. He was choosing to live rough. His brother would come out and try to find him and bring him home, but Rich would ultimately end up in the gutter again. But he still had a fantastic cricket brain, and you know he would hang out near the Pegasus Hotel in, in New Kingston when uh, the test matches were on, and uh, he would go into the hotel and, and meet the players and tell them what they should be doing, and he would hold court. He was still capable of uh, brilliant cricket analysis. And they sort of captivated, especially young players, you know, who really felt a lot for him. And, and a guy like Wavell Hines, who, who sort of came through in the, the late 90s and the, the 2000s, who'd played at Kensington with Richard when Richard came back. Wavell Hines said that um, Richard taught him so much about cricket uh, and in ways that he had never even imagined. But he also sort of loved Richard, as did Wayne Lewis, who was another Jamaican representative from the, uh, the 80s and 90s. And they both talk about how the difference between Herbert Chang and Richard was, and Herbert was very self-absorbed. When he was batting or when he was practicing or whatever, it was all about him. And, you know, you had to uh, take the single when he said to take the single. You had to let him take the strike when he wanted to take the strike. You know, it was all about Herbert. And a lot of the younger guys feared him. But with Richard, he had much more of an open, sort of gregarious personality. And he loved to teach the younger guys how to play. and. I think they really appreciated that. And it, it became kind of a thing whereby every time the West Indies played at Sabina Park, he would show up and, uh, you know, just sort of make his presence known and, and somehow get himself into um, not necessarily the inner sanctum, but, but at least get talking to the commentators and some of the players. And, yeah, so so that, that those were little sort of gems of um, sanity uh, in a way that the rest of his life seemed to have been going in the opposite way, Jared. So he was able to um, just show that he, he still had something to contribute and, and he still wanted to coach. And, and when I met him in 2003, and, and this was actually in the gutter, in, in Crossroads, uh, he said to me that he, he still wanted to coach. And he said, when he found out that I was from Australia, he said, uh, can you call Kerry Packer for me? And I mean, he was kind of half joking, but uh, he said, look, I'll, I'll come over and coach um, Sydney, as he said, uh, New South Wales, and I'll, I'll play for them as well. And can you just call my good friend Kerry Packer and um, I'm sure he'll he'll get me over there you know it was kind of touching it was it was half taking the piss but he was half serious about it you know and um, at that point he was just sort of swigging rum from a plastic bottle of coke and uh, you know he wanted money from me for cocaine and and also his mates who, you know who were hanging around at the time but um, and then he sort of told me about South Africa and that's how I kind of got interested in the whole story and and how it had sort of crueled his his life to a fair degree. 
even up until he died, there were instances where had this knack for, for crashing um, official West Indies do's and, and stuff. You know, he could just sort of get into them somehow. And even though he had maybe uh, washed for four days or whatever, he just sort of turned up and um, he was still able to captivate people with, with his um, cricket smarts, you know. And at the grounds, especially like at Sabina Park, there'd always be uh, a sort of gaggle of, of boys and, and youths and, and older guys, you know, just listening to him and, and you know, taking in what he would say the bowler was going to do with the next ball and, and all this kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, so he had a great mind. But um, the trouble was when he wasn't like that, he was pretty much out of it most of the time. And, and uh, yeah, this was... Um, really making it impossible for him to live with anyone permanently or to live at home. And that's why he lived on the streets. Obviously, your book is called Unforgiven. And I think that might be the name of the chapter in, in my book when I'm writing about them as well. It's like the common word that is used. It felt, though, around Richard's death that perhaps we were seeing things in a slightly different way. I mean, you, when you talk about the poll before and people not understanding what apartheid was, you start to understand that where the background of some of these guys were. And the difference between $74 being paid by the West Indies and $100,000, yeah. it's so tough. It's easy for people in middle class or above areas to go, well, we wouldn't do that. Yep. Whereas for these guys, and it really felt that Richard's death was the kind of the turning point there. Yeah, at the funeral, um, you see that there are people saying then that the thing with Richard was that uh, we should have helped him more, that he did his time, he was punished, and to keep on punishing him really said more about us than it did about Richard and, and what he had done. There's this thing in, in Jamaican culture, that they call it bad mind, and it's a bit like, I suppose, like Schadenfreude in, in Germany which is sort of the pleasure almost at seeing other people sort of fail and, and not get ahead. And a lot of people that I spoke to in Jamaica, in Kingston, said that that was perhaps prevalent in the, in the Richard Austin thing, that people were sort of happy to see him get his comeuppance, you know. But then when he was in their face all the time, being in the middle of town and being so visible, it forced them to reassess what their verdict on, on Richard was and and what a country which is one of the most religious countries in the world, what their faith meant to them and, and how their lack of faith in, in their fellow human beings like Richard uh, was manifesting itself. So it brought on a degree of shame, I think, and um, there were lots of attempts to help him, but there was never really the uh, – Wayne Lewis, who played for Jamaica in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s, he said to me there was never really a concerted effort to help Richard, and he said that he felt – sad that he hadn't done enough and he also felt sad that no one else had done enough because Richard was such a, an open and very friendly, loving kind of guy who was just too trusting in people and perhaps that was where his, his downfall was. So guys like Wayne Lewis and guys who spoke at his funeral and also ministers in the government, what they said was tinged with a, with a sadness that perhaps uh, Jamaica had gone too far in their treatment of, of Richard. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was very sad. And uh, I ended up meeting his um, brother in Mona, which is a middle-class area of Kingston. This is the house that Richard uh, never really lived in. And uh, apparently he, he had a, a hernia. That was the problem. But um, they wanted to operate to fix the hernia, and it was just getting worse and worse. But because of his condition, they couldn't operate. And, um, and then when they finally chose to, 
against the wishes of his brother. He didn't survive the operation because he had been so addled by the, the drug addiction and it had ravaged his body in such a way that he was no longer capable of, of withstanding an operation, Jared. So, um, yeah, that's how he ended up like that. But, yeah, as I write in the book, you know, he, his um, life sort of held a mirror to Jamaica's moral consciousness in that as a young elite-level sportsman from a ghetto, he was fated for transcending a poor background. And it was a rare example in, in, a, in a nation that sort of blighted by by the remnants of slavery. And then as a former test cricketer, he was shunned and scorned for visiting a country that practised a modern form of slavery. But then finally, as a middle-aged vagrant, he was tolerated and humoured. And then he was the target of, of great sympathy, but ultimately a kind of benign neglect as well, because people sort of would look at him and think, oh, that's really sad, but they wouldn't do anything. So um, complicated case, um, Jared. But um, yeah, this this whole story has so many uh, different themes and uh, variables sort of cutting across it that uh, it's just really the humanity of the guys. That's probably what I was trying to get across because I, I don't think I can come down on and say, uh, were these guys uh, in the wrong by going to South Africa? It's up to the Caribbean, really, and, and the people there to answer that question and, and to tackle it, I think. Ashley, thank you very much for coming on. No worries, Jared. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can follow my guest at AshG66 on the Twitters. I am also there. Don't forget to buy Ash's book as well, which you can find a link to in the show notes. Please review our show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere really. Tell everyone you've ever met about it. Just get it out there. Maybe get a face tattoo. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon. So if you love this podcast and you can help out, we'd love it if you can. And huge shout out to all of those who already do. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston, he's the one who looks after your ears. And our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season one included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But season two is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil Dolavira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil Dolavira and also delve into cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams. Sports Social Podcast Network.